This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, there is a good chance that when you think of the word access and the word TV, something along these lines comes to mind. is, though, that most of what's on public access TV doesn't get made into riotously funny movies. In fact, most of it stays right where it is, and it isn't seen by many people at all. Which raises a kind of an interesting question. If most people don't watch public access TV, what kind of access is that exactly? A look at the website for the Manhattan Neighborhood Network, which operates Manhattan's four public access channels reveals that their stated purpose is to, quote, ensure the ability of Manhattan residents to exercise their First Amendment rights through the medium of cable television and to create opportunities for mutual communication, education, artistic expression, and other non-commercial uses of video facilities on an open, uncensored, and equitable basis. Now, that's all very nice, but in the vast space that is today's media landscape, can anyone hear you scream if you're not on one of the major networks? And is it your right to have people actually hear what you're saying? Turns out that is a little bit more of a complicated question than one might think. When you're talking about the media, how does that First Amendment right to free speech work anyway? Here today on the show to unpack this question is media scholar Philip Napoli. Napoli is an associate professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Business Administration, and he's the director of the Donald McGannon Communication Research Center at Fordham. I spoke to him in our studios about the First Amendment, blogging versus handing out leaflets on the corner, and what all of this means in today's world of increasing media consolidation. Phil Napoli, welcome. Thank you. Now, this might seem obvious, but let's just start with this. Tell me what you mean when you talk about access. Access is a concept that uh, really has received a lot of attention in, in, in media regulation and media policy over the years. It has to do with the people people's ability to communicate via the technologies that are available to have access to the kind of information that we think is important for the democratic process to function effectively so there's a lot of different dimensions to this notion of access and in this case i was interested in the idea of to what extent is there a first amendment right of access to audiences that is to what extent does a speaker have a right to reach a large group of people or even to reach a particular group of people that he or she thinks is important to reach you know, the typical analogy people will use in this context is uh, the message in a bottle. You have the right to write your message and put it in a bottle, uh, and you throw it out into the ocean, and if nobody reads it, did you ever actually speak? Speech without an audience, is does that fulfill the principles of the First Amendment? So one of the things that you talk about is that the way people tend to understand the whole idea of access is in a sort of a non-media context, like somebody has the right to stand on the street corner and distribute leaflets or Jehovah's Witnesses have the right to go to people's houses and talk to them, that sort of thing. But what's the difference between access to audiences in that context and access to the media? And why is that an important difference? Yeah, that that was what I really was trying to explore in in this research is why that is, in fact, an important difference. Because, in fact, what we see in the access to media context is a completely different set of justifications, which I'll try to explain here in a second than we see in the non-mediated context. So, for example, you might have the right to go to somebody's door uh, and try to, yeah, to to convert them to a particular religion. And the reason you're allowed to do that is because it is your First Amendment right to reach people. But traditionally, the right of access to media has been premised on the notion that the audience has the right to receive a diverse range of views. 
So suddenly, it, that's what's interesting is in the, the right of access to the media is actually not a First Amendment right that the speaker has. It's actually about giving enough people the right of access to the media so that the audience's First Amendment right to receive information has been fulfilled. And so that's a big shift because when you move from the right of access to the speaker to the right of access to the audience, you're talking about a First Amendment right that not all First Amendment scholars think is really that legitimate. So it's on shakier ground. The right, Our right to receive information is on shakier First Amendment ground than is the traditional right of somebody to speak and to reach people who they want to reach. Why? Uh, it's that's a good question. It's 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 a newer interpretation of the, of the First Amendment. It's not a absolute interpretation of the First Amendment because what we often see are in fact regulations on some speakers' speech rights in order to enhance the rights of the public to receive information. So, for example, we might require broadcast stations to provide opposing viewpoints on the air. Now, that sounds like an infringement on that broadcast station's First Amendment right. But the reason why that's been considered okay is because the right of the viewers or the listeners to get that information is considered more important from a First Amendment standpoint. Famous case once said, it's in, in broadcasting, it's the rights of the listeners and the viewers that are paramount. And that's not the case in most non-mediated speech contexts. So give me an example of how this would play out like in the real world. In the real world, a good example would be, well, let's take this idea of a public forum. In the real world, we've had these things that we've called public forums, street corners, parks, places where traditionally people have gathered to express themselves and to hear ideas. We don't have a public forum in the media. That is, most media, whether it's broadcasting or even the Internet, the courts have never yet said any component of our media system is, in fact, a public forum. So all those rights that we have to hand out pamphlets uh, on the street corner to knock on people's doors, those same kind of speech rights don't exist in the media. The, the rights instead have focused on the individual owners of media outlets or on the rights to, extent, to a certain extent of the listeners, but not on the, on the right of a speaker to, to reach a large audience. Okay, in the real world, you have this right to hand out stuff or mm -hmm. talk to whoever. Mm -hmm. But in the world of media, somehow that right transfers from you to the audience's right to hear a bunch of different stuff. Why is that? I mean, it seems really counterintuitive. It really began from this notion that's really starting to seep away a bit, that the airwaves were so different, that broadcasting was special, broadcasting was using a public resource, that was a big part, so that the individuals or the organizations that had the opportunity to communicate over the airwaves had to relinquish some of, of, of their rights on behalf of the rights of, the, of, of listeners, of viewers. So, for example, this kind of right of access to audiences and this sort of public forum model has never found its way into print, where print has never been treated the same way that broadcasting has. So we have, for example, we've had traditionally in, in broadcasting right of reply regulations that let, for example, a public figure who's been spoken about have the opportunity to reply and respond to whatever's been said about them. If a newspaper writes an editorial about you that you're not happy with, that newspaper has no obligation to give you the opportunity to respond. 
But traditionally, uh, that has not been the case in broadcasting. Is the idea behind that sort of that broadcasting is so much more of a powerful medium? That- yes. The term that you often use is it's uniquely pervasive. And so that becomes an interesting question again. Is broadcasting today really uniquely pervasive? Is the Internet more pervasive? So if we start to assess media by their level of pervasiveness and alter their levels of First Amendment protection accordingly, that sort of gets pretty thorny. I did want to ask you about the Internet. How does that play into all this? What What's the situation with the Internet? Sort of two key aspects of uh, that the Internet has introduced into this equation. One is that it gives us the sense that pretty much anybody today has a right of access to the media. Anybody can be their own media outlet. So superficially, it would seem that any problems related to access to the media have been solved by the widespread access to the Internet. But what the Internet also introduces is the need to dig a little deeper and to determine how different are the levels of access that we see amongst different speakers. We see something interesting online, which uh, I thought was surprising, which was that, for example, the concentration of readers online is greater than you see offline. That is, the top 100 papers in the print realm account for a smaller percentage of newspaper readership than do those same 100 newspapers in the online realm. The top 100 papers are attracting a much larger percentage of newspaper readers online than they're actually attracting offline. So we see more concentration of audience attention on the Internet than we see in other media. So on the one hand, it's this incredible amount of diversity and choice in terms of all the information sources that are out there, but we're actually, as an audience, clustering around proportionally fewer of them than we've seen in these other media. So then I could say, oh, well, I have a right to say whatever I want, and I can do it right here on my blog, but that doesn't mean that anybody's going to be reading it, which I guess is pretty common sense, but right. how does that how does that play with respect to you, to your argument? It, it, it gives us this challenge to sort of differentiate between what a media economist named Bruce Owen has described as the difference between access and success. That is, do different media outlets have large audiences because they're just better at what they do? Or do they have much larger audiences because there are structural characteristics of the media environment that are favoring them and their ability to attract audiences, whether they have the most powerful transmitters or online, whether they're most able to afford to pay for placements in search engines. Are they more heavily linked by other sites? All of these things that help to drive traffic to particular websites or help to attract audiences to particular broadcast stations. It just requires us to look at these aspects of, of ownership, of structure, of distribution, of audience behavior. Does a, you know, a television station that's a channel 212 have the same access to audiences as a network or a station placed on channel 5? Well, research tells us that people don't really do a very good job of flipping through all the channels to know what's uh, out there. They tend to peter out around channel 25 or 30. So these are just some of the kinds of things that we have to look at to have a, a truly nuanced understanding of our of our media system and not just simply be overwhelmed by saying, oh, look at all the choice that's out there. Everything's great. We need to dig a little deeper than that.
You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This week on the show, we are talking about access to audiences in the media and how it is and is not viewed as a First Amendment right. When we started the show this morning, I mentioned public access TV, specifically the Manhattan Neighborhood Network. I've long been a fan of public access TV, especially in New York, where the programming is almost always something that you are not going to see on a lot of the major channels. Something like this. This. Okay, because if you didn't want to accept that, well, let's get some more proof. Give me Matt uh, Axe. Did you finish the 31? Love. Finish it up. With all confidence. With what? All confidence. What? Paul spoke with what? With all confidence. Once again, do we sound like we don't know what we're talking about? This. Or this. We're going to talk with Charlie and Dave in a little bit, but first they're going to do a tune called Just Friends. Those shows, respectively, Fundacion Kisbe, We're Back, TV Exclusivo, and Jones Jazz Jam, all on MNN. But let's get back to our conversation with Philip Napoli. I asked him about public access TV and how it fits in with what we've been talking about today on the show. Public access is, you know, using, for example, you know, within the context of cable television. Cable systems have traditionally been required to make a few of their channels available for the community to use. And that would then give members of the community access to the television audience. Now, that seems to kind of be like along the lines of being allowed personally to hand out leaflets. It's it's essentially acknowledging that, you know what, handing out leaflets is not as necessarily as effective as the opportunities available to a cable system to reach an entire community of, of viewers all at one time. So it's an effort to try to bring exactly some of the things I'm arguing for in this in this paper, some attentiveness to what we would call sort of a more equal distribution of speech rights, a more equal distribution of the right to reach audiences. And so by doing that on cable, by providing these access channels, some of that is achieved. And you can very easily make the case that the reason why very few people watch it is, in fact, because a lot of it might not be that good. So uh, there, that, that's where we get to the issue of success versus access. It is uniquely fascinating, though, especially, I would say, in New York. Yes, and uh, I keep hearing stories of the good old days of public access television where it was even more fascinating, apparently. <laughs> and dirty, yes. actually. Yes, quite dirty. So we missed all that. No, 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 we <laughs> Still didn't. Still going? At, uh, oh. <laughs> it's pretty shocking after 1 a.m. Um, well, now, you say that one of the big differences between the way that we treat people looking to address, you know, I guess, real human audiences like the Jehovah's Witnesses that I mentioned or mm-hmm. the people handing out pamphlets, so on and so forth, and people looking for access to the media is that for the latter, the access to audiences has been premised on the benefits that accrue to the public as a result of their having access to this information, not on preserving and promoting the rights of the individual or the group. I'm reading, by the way, from sure. what you wrote. What is the effective difference here and why does this matter. That actually has been one of the... In fact, you could almost divide the two sort of camps in media regulation along the lines of whether or not they prioritize individual First Amendment rights or what we would call collective First Amendment rights. And that goes to essentially what is the First Amendment for? What are its key functions? Is the First Amendment first and foremost for guaranteeing that every individual has as much autonomy and as much right to say what they want as possible? Or does the First Amendment serve a broader purpose to create an environment, a speech environment, 
that is most conducive to the democratic process functioning well. And so what happens then, the difference between the individual and the collectivist interpretations is that the individualist says the government under no circumstances can impose restrictions on anybody's free speech rights. The collectivist says the government can impose restrictions on individual free speech rights when the goal is to enhance the broader speech environment. So it might make sense to limit some people's speech rights if the end result is an environment where we think the overall opportunities for expression are enhanced and that the democratic process would function better. And so there's a very long tradition of individual rights versus collectivist rights being articulated. A collectivist focuses on things like the democratic process, stability in the community, well-informed decision-making, all of these things that we hope that the community does well. The individualist worries first and foremost about to what extent it is an individual's right to say what he or she wants to say being protected, regardless of how that might impact the collective as a whole. I was going to ask where you fall on this, but instead I'm actually just going to read this quote and ask you to tell me more about it. You say that the contemporary media environment brings unprecedented levels of inequality to the extent to which different speakers have the opportunity to have their voices heard. Tell me what you mean by that. Basically, how access to the available communication technologies has been distributed produces inequalities in the level of access to audiences that we have to be aware of. So, for example, take a... We'll take a company like Comcast. Comcast reaches over, I think it's about 40% of cable television subscribers in the United States. We don't really have limits in place anymore on how many cable systems any one company can own. So one company, one speaker, so to speak, has that kind of control over the kind of programming that goes to any individual household. That's a very large reach that one speaker is able to have. We've seen, you know, over the past 10 years, relaxation of all of our media ownership regulations. There's no limit anymore on how many radio stations, for example, any one company can own. And these are trends that have been happening for years and years. And there may be plenty of reasons why it makes very good sense economically. question is, however, does it raise concerns about the allocation of speech opportunities, the right to reach audiences? Because at the same time as the number of outlets owned by individual companies has increased, we've also removed a lot of the old requirements that would grant access to individual speakers. So, for example, the well-known Fairness Doctrine, which provided individuals with a right of access to individual media outlets, is gone. The, the need to provide balanced viewpoints is gone, and so that way many viewpoints can be excluded if, if it's so desired. So it's a realm in which content regulation has diminished. At the same time, ownership regulation has diminished. So we're able to see these sort of concentrations of audience reach that we really didn't see in years past. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flair. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On this week's show, Tales from the Supermarket, that's ahead this morning on Cityscape. 
This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are looking at the First Amendment in the world of electronic media. My guest is Philip Napoli. He's the director of Fordham's Donald McGannon Communications Research Center. When we spoke earlier this week, the news hadn't yet come out that the Federal Communications Commission is seeking to relax media ownership rules even further, including repealing a rule that forbids a company to own both a newspaper and a television or radio station in the same city. I didn't get a chance to ask Napoli about that specifically, but I did get a chance to ask him about how today's media environment in general is affecting the right to access. How are things getting better and how are they getting worse? Here's what he had to say. The improvement comes in the extent to which the Internet is becoming an important source of alternative viewpoints and individuals and speakers. That's something that that the FCC is really trying to get a handle on these days. To what extent is it not just a conduit, not just a conduit for information produced for other channels, but to what extent is it a source of original viewpoint, original reporting, original ideas and information that can truly inform citizens and really help the democratic process along. Uh, So, of course, today a lot of the discussion is uh, focused on you know, what exactly is happening in the blogosphere? Who are these bloggers? Where are they getting their information? How many people are really reading blogs regularly and are being influenced by them? And what is their contribution to the overall media system? There have been examples already of, of blogs being incredibly influential, and, uh, and some of them are, are really widely read. And, of course, they also have proven to really influence the traditional media, that the blogs are often places now where stories break. But the question often becomes... Is the blog a substitute? Is a blog a substitute for a nightly newscast from either a speaker's standpoint or an audience's standpoint? If the Internet was a substitute for the spectrum, you might see, for example, all of your broadcast networks and stations say, you know what? Heck with all these indecency regulations. We're just going to stop broadcasting. We're just going to you know, webcast. But they're not doing that. So clearly there's some access benefits still to having spectrum, to having some of the traditional media uh, that the new media are not able to serve as a a perfect substitute yet. I was going to ask you, you mentioned, you said before, you know, maybe all this uh, media consolidation makes great financial sense. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, I think for a lot of people, they'd say, so, you know, what's the problem? And one of the answers to that is that the media are supposed to have certain services that they provide to the democratic system. And I was hoping that you could, as an expert on this, explain to me exactly what the sort of public service responsibilities are supposed to be of TV stations and radio stations. Yeah, and that's an important point, that these public service responsibilities in in this country traditionally have focused almost exclusively on our broadcast media, our radio and over-the-air television stations. They have an obligation as a licensee to serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity, as the uh, Communications Act states. Today, it means things like providing, in the television context, three hours of educational children's programming a week. It means providing political candidates with advertising time at the lowest unit charge, that, you know, that is discounts for political advertisers. It means refraining from indecency uh, in broadcasting. But it doesn't mean a lot of the things that it used to. It doesn't mean, for example, anymore that there are certain mandated amounts of local news and public affairs that stations need to provide. It doesn't mean that there's an obligation anymore to provide multiple perspectives on controversial issues of public importance. So these are areas where the, the notion of the public interest has been narrowed down a bit. And many people would argue that today 
what's really asked of broadcasters in terms of their public service is minimal. Today, to get your license renewed, you fill out a postcard and you mail it in. So how much information can you really provide about your performance that uh, would, would, could be rigorously assessed? Uh, so it's, uh, it's diminished. It's diminished and with the, uh, under the assumption that our other media sources are picking up the slack. What are you recommending here? What I recommend in, 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 in the paper that I've been working on is that our policymakers actually start to think about our media environment more along the lines of a public forum. And by specifically that, that they consider the notion of access to audiences as a First Amendment right that matters to them. That it's not something that exists just for street corner speakers, that when they look at their, the current media environment and assess what kind of regulations are needed or not needed, that one of the first questions they ask themselves is to what extent is the First Amendment right of access to audiences, that is to what extent are speech opportunities being widely distributed, that that become a policy priority and that they make policy accordingly. So I'm not recommending any particular regulation be instituted or go away. What I'm really trying to recommend here is a a change in perspective that's brought to bear on all these issues because the notion of access to audiences is just completely absent from how we think about the relationship between the First Amendment and the media today. I will ask you one more question and I'll close with this. This does seem to be sort of, as much as we've talked about it, a little bit of an abstract issue. And I'm thinking that you don't see it that way. Tell me why people should care about this in terms of their own daily lives. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, it is one of these forays that I, I haven't done too often myself into sort of abstract First Amendment theory. Um, but it really matters to the average citizen because it would create a regulatory environment in which individual speakers, that they would that they would be given the opportunity to hear a wide range of speakers, a wide range of viewpoints, and become better informed and, and more exposed to a diverse array of viewpoints. Uh, and that it would, I argue that, that policies that do that would have a better chance of surviving scrutiny from the courts, a better chance of making it through the FCC and making it through Congress if indeed they were justified by the individual rights of the speaker rather than the rights of of the audience. The rights of the audience have not been as potent a rationale for thinking about our media this way. And I think that's something we have to recognize, and it's unfortunate, but it's the speaker's rights that matter most. And I would say that there are ways then that we could really promote the First Amendment rights of speakers in ways that makes the audience and the collective, uh, the citizenry, really the beneficiaries. What would you hope that TV and radio would look like in the event of all this happening? I would hope that television and radio would change in such a way that the opportunities for more diverse owners, more different owners, just in terms of numbers, would would expand, that we would approach all of our media sectors this way. That is not weighing economic efficiency as heavily against our needs as a democracy as we have. That is, yes, it is the case that greater concentration of ownership, for example, is is often uh, very efficient, but we don't do as good a job of assessing the costs that that might impose on the citizens in terms of our ability to be well-informed, but also the costs in terms of the ability of, of, of more people and more viewpoints to be expressed uh, as, uh, as, as we see today. Well, Phil Napoli, 
Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks. Philip Napoli is an associate professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Business, and he is the director of the Donald McGannon Communication Research Center. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show today, or if you'd like to hear it again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can find on our website as well. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.